0: Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Get Out of Rap. Today I spoke to Jerry Lyons and Jerry is director of Omnes Healthcare Operations Center and prior to that Jerry's worked at Computer Center Conduit Global, Saito and Circo so has a lot of experience in the outsourcing market. He posted a really interesting article the other day on LinkedIn about his football coaching career that's kind of run alongside his career in contact centres and we talk about that. He also talks about all the people that have influenced his career and for why and shares his uh, secrets to success. Really interesting guy, really interesting chat so hope you enjoy it. Hi everyone and hi Jerry. Thanks very much for agreeing to do this, giving up your time on a Friday and um, just before I hit record. We were talking about how we kind of got to know each other, but also that we're going to be on either side of a Tottenham-Man United game <laughs> <laughs> tonight. So uh, let's—it's be, it's better we're recording this before rather than after because one of us is going to be disappointed.
1: True, or it could be a draw. You never know. You never know.
0: Well, then I'd be disappointed because we should win. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Jerry, thanks very much. Um, I've loved seeing all your work and the things that you write on. LinkedIn, and that's kind of how we met, isn't it? But yes. um, I'd love to, and I know people listening would, and I know you're a big fan of the um, podcast and support all the job hunting stuff that um, I post. But I'd love to know what sort of what give us a sort of potted history of your your background.
1: Well, I mean, ironically, I'm a Man United fan, but I was born and raised in Birmingham, uh, and moved down to London in my. Uh, I think I was 14 or so when I moved down. And I've always been into my football. I think you know a lot of people are, and you know, you know, I had aspirations to be a professional. Um, and I always say, you know, in my older age, I was good, but I just wasn't good enough. Um, yeah. but that's something which I recognize at an early age. But I've always um loved coaching and development. Um even, even at a younger age, I was always someone who would speak to other people in my peer group, try and get them on side, etc., try and support the manager. You know, I was never um, always someone that you'd say would be a captain, but you don't necessarily have to be the captain to be a good role model. Um, I was in a football academy, um, you know, studying sports studies, the usual route. I think I was in actually the second football academy ever in the UK. So non-professional football academy, so ProTech. So anyone who's been to ProTech or Crown and Manor, hello to you. We were the pioneers. Um, But when I was studying at college, that's when I first did my coaching badges and it's one thing being able to um, support people without qualification, but once you get the qualifications, it almost, it was like a, a light bulb went off in my head at that moment. And so I did my coaching, I did my, actually I did my junior team manager's award first. Uh, that supported my community sports leaders, which I did at college. Um, and then I moved on to my level one, which ironically um, I found uh, after speaking to the FA a few weeks ago, which led us to the post, which is why I'm here today. Um, and yeah I mean I, always, I remember it to this day because I always had a background working in retail I think a lot of people you know when they are younger they're working mm. in retail moving into contact centers but I was very much in the retail space and I literally just wanted a change of scenery and I remember I remember to this day walking into ironically the job center in Tottenham <laughs> um, and I saw a job, job advert for a football coach a company called WizKids based in Essex and I thought oh I like that. I'm, I like football. I love yeah. coaching. Um, and yeah, from there, I got into coaching, coaching at schools in Essex and East London. And I've always um, had a little bit of a, um, a jovial character. And I think one of the things which everyone said is, oh, well, Jerry, you working with kids, you'll be, it's like you, you'll fit in perfectly how you, how you <laughs> yeah. behave. Um, and yeah, I mean, one of the things I recognize, and I've, and I've said this. For many many years, I've been working with, and I've worked in lots of different sectors in outsourcing. Working with kids uh, is, you know, you're working with the most important important asset in the world. You know, nothing is more important than kids. You don't have kids, it doesn't mean that kids are not important because kids are the future. They are the new generation. Whether it be politics, whether it be in uh, a different industries, different sectors, and working with kids from different cultures, and also having to liaise and speak to their parents, made me recognise. The things that you've got to look out for, you know, but traits, behaviors, mannerisms, how you manage your performance, underperformance, etc. And these are the things which I love doing for so many, many years. And the only reason I moved out of coaching, actually, you know, as a, it, it literally was, I mean, back when I was coaching, you literally really only had as an option the grass pitches mm. or a concrete pitch. You didn't really yeah. have the 4G, 5G pitches that you have now, sorry, 3G or 4G. So as a self employed person, you know, money was a fluctuating yeah. up and down, there'd be weeks where I wasn't working, and there'd be weeks where I was, I mean, the most sessions I'd be doing in a day was four sessions a day, mm. and I said to myself, you know what, and also it's cold in England, that's another <laughs> thing, um, <laughs> I, I just, I wanted to change the scenery, and then, and then I just literally walked into contact centres, I remember working for a company called TMP Worldwide. Um, which sounds like something from uh, a skit from Step Brothers, but actually it, it does, doesn't is, it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Boats uh, and hoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were based in Holborn. And so I was doing telephone interviews, initial telephone screenings for the Halifax and RBS. And you now walking into this role, um, and I was only there for a couple of months. So I was like, okay, I like this. There was a buzz about it. One of the things that I missed about um, when I went into coaching was just interaction with adults. I mean, mm. it's ironic, though, you <laughs> working with <laughs> kids. The only interaction with adults I'd really have was with maybe the school receptionist or, or, or the head teacher or a teacher or teachers mm-hmm. every now and then. And I miss the adult banter. And then, you know, working in a contact center, that's the majority of what you get. And, you know, being, you know, around 24, 25 is something that I said, okay, you know, I'm enjoying this. I liked it. Uh, so I was, I was doing a little bit of coaching on the side. I'm still working coaching on Saturdays, Saturday mornings because I love doing it. Um, And, you know, I was working with Winchmore Hill, uh, which is where they supported me getting my coaching badges. So I always said I'd always want to continue coaching. Uh, But TMP, um, you know, after my time finished there, I I moved on to uh, Dialophone uh, in, I think it was Kentish Town. So this was actually my first sales job. And didn't enjoy it as much. Uh, So I was working on uh, outbound sales on the power dialer. Uh, you barely got time to breathe, you know, yeah. between calls, um, you know, and but then it, it, it sharpened my mind on targets, you know, making sure you're hitting your targets, uh, making sure that you're offering the right service to the customer because, you know, not everybody needs a mobile phone. But, you know, you're offering them alternatives. There might be people in the family that need a mobile phone. So there's lots of coaching elements I took from that because, you know, one of the things which I was able to do is that when we had new starters, you know, I was making sure that, you know, I was hitting my targets. So I was an individual who the supervisor would say, you know, sit down with Jerry or sit down with so-and-so um, and just giving people a positive interaction to the business, because, you know, for me, whenever, when someone starts in a new business, there's no difference to someone starting their first day at school
0: mm. or starting at a
1: new football club. You know, you know, who's going to be that person to make that, that person feel comfortable because ultimately in sales, yes, you are looking for your individual targets, but the, the, the more, as a team, you hit your targets and the easier it is for your, um, your organisation to do things that may end up ultimately benefiting yourself. And it's the same thing in football. You know, There's no point having a new striker or, you know, for example, you know, Man United or Spurs, bringing a new player and the rest of the, the team or the squad making that person feel uncomfortable. Because Ultimately, when that person comes into the team, they're not going to perform to the best of their ability.
0: I always so, found as well, because you know, um, I was like you. I, I was in outbound sales. And it used to worry me sometimes if let's say it was me, if I hit my target but no one else in my team did, mm-hmm. that that's not actually that enjoyable. It makes you think this this isn't A, it's not a nice feeling, but B makes you think Are we, we should all be succeeding, surely. Yeah. That's the whole point.
1: No, no, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I I mean, don't get me wrong, I was never a super salesman um but you know there's me neither I, I was always like
0: six out of ten <laughs> if it's a player rating I was always a solid six yeah, or seven out yeah. of ten
1: it got to the point eventually that they wanted to release me from a contract on a free transfer so <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but um yeah I mean I, I completely agree with you I mean what what you don't want to be is that isolated individual who's performing and the rest of your team are not because are you then going to become um you know distance from your team uh, but I think that's where it's a mark of a, of an individual also as a manager to then recognise some that individual, and then recognise why they're achieving. You know, what are the things mm. that they're saying? You know, are they modifying the um, the um, the opening of a call differently? Are they delivering a message differently? Also, you need to ultimately make sure that, that you're doing your compliance correctly because are they are they saying the right things? Are they misselling? So there's so many things that you can take uh, from um, well an individual who's over-performing and how you can make that individual be a good example for those that are underperforming or those people that just want to, you know, improve their sales scores and mm-hmm. uh, increase um, the amount of um, conversion that they have. You know, so for me, you know, working in sales, it made me recognize that I don't enjoy working in sales, <laughs> but it also made me recognize that everything we do, there is an element of sales in it. Uh, so whether I'm speaking to new starters, if, I mean, I always say when I interview, you know, I'm selling the business to you you know, how, how effectively am I selling Omnis to new starters? Because ultimately, you know, we want them more than they want us, really, you know, should be thinking about it that way. And we need to make sure that we're an employer of choice, which is what Omnis are trying to do, whether that's us recruiting um, GPs, whether that's us recruiting administrative staff in the RMC, we need to make sure that we are promoting an environment which makes people not only want to join us, but want to stay and recommend us to other people, uh, because that's important. So though I'm not Mr. Sales Guy, I acknowledge and respect the industry because it is it's probably one of the most difficult industries in the world, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. You know, and I think, but also on the flip side, it's one of those industries which has probably shown us that, I mean, remote working has probably been in sales for far longer than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you think of the, the door-to-door salesman, canvassing, et cetera, when you think of, you know, people, uh, field sales representatives, people have had to be away from the the hive so to speak to make and, and also make sure that they did deliver performance you know so you know going back to you know you know my work history you not know, working dialer phone for me it taught me a lot uh, but it made me recognize that though i loved working in contact centers i wanted uh, to work in inbound, <laughs> inbound yeah. customer service yeah. Um, yeah you know so that was a promised land <laughs> yeah it was, it was but then also i remember at the time i'd always i was going for lots of interviews and this is prior to getting into contact centers, people would say, oh, well you haven't got necessary experience in contact centers. And often the easiest way to get that experience is to get into sales, you know, because yeah. often they just want someone that's young and hungry and someone that's happy to make X amount of phone calls per hour, which is what most people are if you, if you dangle any money at them as an <laughs> employee. Uh, but after, it was an interesting thing, and I think the one role, and I always talk about this, um, this organization, uh, the one organisation which really shaped me was when I worked for a company called My Deposits, um, dealing with tenancy deposit protection. I mean, I remember being approached by Hayes um, in Barnet, and they said, "Oh, we've got a brand new organisation, Hamilton Fraser Insurance. They've got a brand new uh, government leg- legislation that they're working on, which is uh, tenancy deposit protection." And I was like, "What's that?" Because at the time it was brand new. I think it was 2007. Uh, and I, w- I remember walking into the contact center and at the time i didn't know who he was but you know it's a good friend of mine and, and he's mentored me for many years. Uh, gentlemen called Garland, who c- came from the listening company so the listening company was acquired by circo and um hamilton fraser um basically employed the listening company to help them set up the contact center so i just re- it, it's, it was like a if you've watched the film boiler room yeah. It was like a scene from that an empty office with one desk and someone with their head down on the phone making calls. And I was thinking, this sounds a bit dodgy. <laughs> but actually, it wasn't. You know, uh, you know, people have got to protect their deposits, you know, landlords, agents, tenants. And I remember walking into that organization. And I was, I was one of the original three members of staff, joined on the 19th of March 2007. Um, I think it was, was with Glenn and KT. So I was still good friends with both of them. And just, yeah, I was just learning from the bottom up. And one of the things which I remember, and it stays with me to this day, the, the CEO, Eddie Hooker, who still bears with me to this day. Uh, I wouldn't say he, he, he loves me, he, <laughs> you know, he, he bears me. <laughs> I always remember him saying after many meetings, um, he was always saying, Jerry, challenge the process because we're a new company. We had to set up new departments, new, new areas of business, new ways of working. And he said, challenge the process. And, I, and that's, that always stayed with me. And... I was fortunate enough to um, be good at the job. But I remember, because I was still living at home at the time, and I remember, compl- I remember coming home, complaining to my mom, saying, no, nah, I'm not getting enough money. I was always whinging and whining. And my mom <laughs> said, Jeremiah, I said, she went, you know, why are you always complaining? And she said, mom, but you know, I'm not getting enough money. And she said, okay. She said, are there any supervisors? And I went, no. And she said, okay, well, who's going to be the supervisor? And like a tip- typical petulant t- child regressing as an adult, and um, I was like i don't know she went well why don't you make it you and mom, i mean just to give you a bit of background so my mom's uh, been in adult education for years and you know um, she she um, teaches business and finance and she's she always used to say to me you know you need to be the person to make the difference you need to make yourself indispensable mm, and, and then then she reminded me of this type of conversation she had with me when i was younger she said there's no supervisors are you doing everything to make yourself that first supervisor he says, "How many times have I had to wake up in the morning to get into work?" You know, I said, "You need to make sure that your timekeeping's on point. You need to make sure that you're delivering, and all of these things." I sat there and I thought, "You know what? She's right." And that's when the penny dropped because I'd never been in a managerial position in, in customer services before. And I remember at the time, uh, my um, my boss Trisha Bowden, she said, "You know what, Jerry? You know, you know, you're you're very good with new starters." You're very good at mentoring people. You're, you're, you're fantastic with all your processes. Because I used to sit next to a pillar and I used to have all of these little um, all these little bits and pieces that I needed to remember to help me be the, an effective call handler. And um, I was one of the individuals she used to make me um, who she used to make new starters sit with. And then eventually over time, I became a supervisor of sorts. But then after about nine months or so of working at the company, we then started to get the first disputes coming through, tenancies ending. And then I was um, earmarked to move into the disputes department with um, Sean Hooker, who was the disputes manager. And, and I think that's when everything just, it was like a, it was like a, a snowball going downhill. Uh, literally moved into management, um, was challenging everything within the business. And I, I think I was very much a tiddly wing that grew into a very much of a, a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. But as an organization, one of the things which uh, my deposit showed me was, what a company could achieve if they gave the staff an opportunity to be a bigger part of the process. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. going to um, Mansfield to visit Countrywide Estates, who I think are the largest estate agents in the UK, the they're not sure now. But I sat there thinking, wow, you know, the directors asking me to come to this important meeting or going to meet Foxton's or, or seeing Rains, et etc. All of these things made me realise that because I'm good at what I'm doing and because I'm looking to support other people, I'm being given these opportunities. And these were things that I would then go back to my team and say, well, these, you know, I'm not special, you know, you guys are more talented at the role than me, but I've I've invested in the company and the the company invested back in me. And I'll always use that. I mean, that's a company that I'll always recommend to people. I'll always, um, you know, you'll see me often promoting the the businesses, um, their business. You know, they've moved into so many different areas now. And, and I think it's a testament to Eddie, to Sean, um, to, um, to all of the managers there who have actually given other people an opportunity. Because if they didn't, they probably wouldn't have been as successful as they are. And I think, you know, for anyone that's trying to move into any organisation, making yourself invaluable is basically a catchphrase. It's about the doing. It's about the countless long hours that you're working. And, and it's about doing the work and not expecting the reward because some of the work that people will do in an organisation, it's not necessarily the reward that you'll get there maybe later, later on in life. And it's about recognising that and, and sometimes sitting it out because those opportunities will always manifest in service. So for me, my deposits, and you know, it's for me the, one of the best organisations to work for and, and, and I'm proud to have been a part of their success and they're a very much a part of my journey and that's one of the reasons why I'm happy to refer to them.
0: I love I love recounting that kind of um, that because it obviously means so much to you. And as you yeah. kind of um, the lessons learned, and I think a lot of people can relate to that and think, yeah. OK, where was it? And sometimes I mean, yours, that, that, that sounds, you know, a lot of hard work, a lot of being out of your comfort zone, but a lot of good fun. Sometimes I guess people have similar experiences where it isn't as much fun.
1: Yeah. Um, Where did you go from there? Oh, from there I moved on to Circo. Uh, So I was headhunted by um, I can't remember who I was approached by actually, but I I went went over to Circo for Barclays Cycle Hire, and this was an interesting job. I mean, I've got so many friends uh, from Circo I'm still in touch with. I mean, one of my good friends. Um, who I'll mention when I'm speaking about my time at Serco. Um, You know, we're very much good friends now. Serco, for me, they're a a massive organisation, huge. They do everything. But when I walked into the contact centre in Enfield, I was like, wow, um, (laughs) this is very much different to what I'm used to. Everyone was pulling in different directions. It was very, very chaotic. And I had a very different dynamic there because when I worked for My Deposits, Uh, the client was communities and local government. You hardly saw them. Mm. When I walked into uh, Serco and the office in Enfield, uh, we had a TFL on site. So Transport for London were there and we were not performing in their eyes. Um, It was very much the management at the time. It was interesting because I was brought in as the quality assurance manager. Uh, So I was brought in to set up their new quality assurance team dealing with, uh, with, uh, with voice and with email and chat. And it was so interesting because, you know, when we sat down in the first meeting to discuss call quality, the team leaders were like, yeah, yeah, we're like 95% quality. Look at all our scores. We're like, okay. And I was like, mm. I was listening to lots of calls. I think I listened to around 100 to 200 calls. And I was thinking, nah, that's not No,
0: good. yeah. And the
1: client was like, Jerry, the call quality is not what it needs to be. And then the interesting thing is, is that I found out that the team leaders were on a bonus and that bonus, a part of that bonus was the call quality.
0: Wow, I wonder leaders, why it was so high. <laughs> yeah, and the
1: team leaders were marking the calls. So the interesting thing that I had there, and this is probably one of the biggest challenges that I had, was how do I get the team leaders on, on board? Because in essence, I'm saying that you're not as, your teams are not as good as you say they are. Um, so this was—it led to a lot of heated discussions. Uh, but one of the things I always said is that we need to be transparent. In anything that we say and anything that we do, uh, we need to be uh, able to um, proudly say this is where we're at. So after lots of discussions with Transport for London, I asked them to be engaged in this calibration uh, and also uh, the team leaders and also the new quality assurance executives who who we recruited into the roles. We all sat down and we just basically just laid it all out on the table, you know, listen to this. this call as good as it needs to be. Yeah. And there was a few yeah. embarrassed faces because a few of the people that had marked this call as maybe 92% were actually sitting in the room. But rather than chastise them, we said, right, listen, we're going to have a blank slate. This is what we're going to do from going in. You're going to, uh, the quality assurance executives were then marking the high percentage of the call so you have, no, um, you have no individual who's got a vested interest in the performance mm. other than we want to be the best, um, we want to deliver the best service as opposed to I want to get my £250 bonus." <laughs>
0: yeah very different motivators aren't they yes
1: exactly but the team leaders one of the things that I said I I still need you to monitor I still need you to be hands-on I still need you to be a part of delivering um feedback to your staff so they they although they were marking calls they were marking a lower percentage of calls but they were a part of the calibration I mean after a while and one of the I think I was there for 18 months or so the proudest thing that I had was that I think we actually ended up calibrating in one of the last months I was there was about 95% but I was proud right. because it was a true calibrated score yeah the client was very very happy with it because they knew that this is what a 95% score is but also the staff were actually happy because initially in the beginning they were like who's this person Jerry telling us that we're not as good as we are yeah. But again I involved them in the process we were doing lots of coaching sessions lots of lots of feedback you know lots of stop stop continue there's so many mm. you know elements that you can do from a coaching perspective to let an individual know what they're doing well let them know what they can improve upon and let them know what they need to continue doing or what they need to implement to improve their performance so for me i was really proud of that that tenure because one i was able to turn it around but two again i had a very supporting manager uh, my old boss chris de he's now working at mastercard you know he was probably uh, the most um supportive manager I've come across. I mean, he was fantastic. I mean, I came from my deposits thinking that I was a golden child and thinking that (laughs) you know I can do you know everything I touch is gold. And he gave me a reality check, you know, he's (laughs) vastly experienced, you know, worked in contact centers all over the globe. And he gave me a he gave me a reality check. He's like, You're good, but you're not as good as you actually think you are. And I think one of the things that it did, it 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 was like a sober moment for me because it made me realize that I still need to learn there's still things I need to improve upon. For me to be a good uh, role model, I still need to recognize that I need to learn from those above me and those, be- those below me. Managing upwards is a, a fantastic effective tool, but it's about making sure that the people below you are also aware that they can challenge me in any mm. instances. And my colleague, um, Johan, uh, he was my quality assurance executive. We're very good friends now. And he, I always remember him because he was an individual. His timekeeping wasn't necessarily the greatest, but he was very, very talented. And, you know, he's someone whose career that I've watched over the last eight years and he's gone on, on to le- leaps and bounds, even as so, so much as I, I had to give him a call the other day to help me look at some syntax of Excel, but he's turned into, an, he's turned into <laughs> a human. And one of the things that, you know, I said to him, and, you know, I said, I said you know, Johan, Yo, I said, in your career, you're going to get lots of challenges because I was pulling off on lots of bits and pieces. My boss was challenging me, so I never yeah. was challenging him. But I said, I said, you need to put yourself in a place where you—it's not easy, you know. It's very easy to go into a role where you're the greatest at what you do, and you know you're not challenging yourself. So I made lots of challenges for him, and then, but he also challenged me. So he said, "Well, Jerry, we're doing this with the monthly report. What about us changing this? Or we're providing feedback in this way. What about us doing it in that way?" And the same thing with his peer Rebecca—that you know they challenge me to be better at my job. And a part of being a coach is recognizing that you haven't got the solution in all instances. Yeah. Recognize ultimately that not everyone learns in the same way. You know, you, know you, need to, you need to often adapt for the group. And that's one of the things with coaching kids with football, because one of the things, if you're, not, if you're coaching in a football academy, you're going to get the elite players of the age group. Mm. But if you're doing it in, for private organizations or just doing it out in the community or in schools, you're going to get people with different skill sets and different attention spans or, or different interests as well. I mean, because I've had, I remember going to a school in Homerton and having to coach a, um, I used to, every Wednesday I used to coach a, I think there were year five girls. The most traumatic experience for me (laughs) as a young coach, because they weren't necessarily interested in football, you know, but it was an opportunity. It was at the time where the government implemented at least half an hour or an hour of an additional PE had to be put in place. So for me as a coach, I was like, yes, more money. But then I wasn't used to this group of girls. Not Obviously, you know, not necessarily all um, people like football. Um, but then obviously I was like, but girls, you're actually here. But participation doesn't actually mean that they want to participate. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you get the few people in the group that were happy to do so. But then that also challenged me. I had to approach it very differently because how you communicate with boys and girls is very, very different. And then, you know, in education, you know, whether it's people coming from different cultures, you know, people coming from you know, different backgrounds or homes, different challenges mm-hmm. at home, could mean why they are interested or not interested. So that, and that also made me recognise because usually I was used to the, just a big group of boys loving football, got their brand mm-hmm. new Spurs kit on or their new United shirt and their dad's there cheering them on and they want to be there. But the interesting thing that working with these groups of girls can recognise is how do you get the performance out of people that don't necessarily want to be there? Mm-hmm. And it's about recognising that often you have to, making them understand that they have to be there. So let's, let's agree that we have to get the best ever out of our time here and just keeping their attention because obviously what I recognize is that I was putting on sessions, maybe a little bit too technical for their ability. So it's about me taking a step back and recognizing and speaking to the group of girls. And one of the things that I recognize is with the, with boys, I didn't necessarily take on board feedback as much feels like this is a session for your ability level, take it on board. Yeah. With the girls, I had to take a step back and say, well, girls, well, what are you struggling with? You know, mm. was that pretty, what was that clear? And they would tell me what they enjoyed about the session. And then I recognized that I needed to implement this into the session with the boys. And then even the boys, actually, their session started to move on. And, and again, I translate that into work because, you know, just because, um, you know, just because I've delivered a message in a, a certain way and it's being received by a certain group in one way, doesn't mean it'll be received well by another group or even the same group on a different day yeah Often you need to change you need to modify uh, your communication to your audience and that's one of that's what i've always loved about coaching because in my current coaching role with um with stockfold and with the development side i mean the youngest player in the team is 16 and the oldest um it, the average i think the oldest is about 37 so because obviously we're development reserves it's a broad um, range of ages, but the great thing for the younger players is that they've got people that have been there and done it. And what I'm, I always try to convey to them is, you can make mistakes, but sometimes it's quicker to listen to someone that's made those mistakes already and then try to just sidestep those mistakes because you, you can make three steps forward as opposed to three steps back. And it it's very very challenging with the with the group of players. They're very very talented. We play fantastic, attractive football. But it's recognising that they're still young. And sometimes you have to accept that people have got to make mistakes themselves for them to understand why they need to choose a, a different way of working. So for me, as I said, you know, Circo for me was fantastic. It was a multicultural organization, you know, working with Transport for London and also recognizing that you need to deliver in a different way when the client's sitting right next to you. You know, it's very easy when the client's saying, you know, how's our performance? And you're on a call and you're delivering. Yeah, yeah it's brilliant. <laughs> But when they're, when they're seeing it themselves, I mean, I remember my client, Natalie. Um, you know, she, she lived very close to the office. So she'd often be in the office herself first. And I remember a few times she'd be like, oh, well, Jerry, you know, you had a few performance issues, um, not enough people online. I'm seeing people turn up late for work. So it's very obvious and in your face yeah. then, so it's these things, recognizing and saying it to the team managers and saying it to the staff. You know, you know, we've we've got a fantastic client, and she was a fantastic client because you know it was her baby that you know the. the I'm just saying that there's certain things that we've got to do to make sure that we are delivering effectively for the client, and it was a proud moment when we knew that we were delivering effectively because eventually she started to be there less frequently, because she had a lot more trust and faith in what we were doing, and eventually the same people who were Underperforming started to perform, and seeing those people move from being um, core handlers to team leaders, you know, the proudest moments for me have been when the people that used to uh, report into me took my roles. So, mm-hmm. uh, at my deposits, Andrea moved into the role um, of in disputes. Um, at Circo, Charmaine moved into that role, and when I when I then moved from Circo over to Saitel, uh, Matt Chrisley moved into my role uh, when I moved on to Conduit. And for me, I think that's testament. I wouldn't necessarily say to my ability, I'd say to my investing in people because you don't necessarily have to be a talented manager to recognize that you need to recognize talent in other people. Mm-hmm. You just have to take the time to listen to people, support them, find out what makes them tick, how you can help them in their career because not everyone wants to work in outsourcing for the rest of their life. That's, no. that's the thing mm-hmm. people need to recognize. And I think that's, that's probably my proudest achievement is that I've helped a lot of people move on in their own career. And, you know, so when I see their, uh, their CVs on uh, LinkedIn, I, I'm, I'm proud. And I think, yeah. uh, you know, for me, I mean, I'm, I've always been a left winger and, you know, I've never scored a lot of goals. But I've always been proud to assist.
0: Tricky left winger.
1: I, I wouldn't <laughs> say tricky, just direct pace. That's it. <laughs> Not now though. Um, but I always people say you don't you don't score a lot of goals but I get I used to get more of a buzz of setting up goals
0: yeah
1: when I see people develop and progress in their career that's that same buzz that I get helping assisting someone to get that promotion or assisting someone to move from being a 90% to a 95% and that's why you know when people are talking about you know when you say about you know me um resharing all of the posts and all of the things that I do One of the things I always say to people is the door was opened for me by somebody else. So I'll Mm. never close the door in someone else's face. It's important for managers to always keep that supply line of talent moving forward. You know, whether that be in coaching, whether that be in football, whether that be in outsourcing or retail, because you never know when you're going to need that somebody. And case in point is my old colleague, Johan picked up the phone. I said, Johan, I need help with this. Yeah. What's going on with this, um, with this formula? And he said, you know what, Jerry, he dropped what he was looking at. We did a little screen share. He, he looked at my, um, my syntax and said, oh, that's what your problem is. And, I, and it's things like that. Because ultimately, I said to Jan, I said, Jan, you're going to bigger and better things than I will do if you're far more talented than I. But he wasn't showing that talent at the time, but he's recognizing the snippets of talent and then helping that individual hone in on that and improve. And that's what I love about outsourcing. And I say it to so many people, it's the one industry that you can walk in the door from the bottom and probably walk out the end as a CEO. I mean, you're very, very rarely finding a football club that a player will be able to then become the owner of a company, mm. unless you're David Beckham. Um, <laughs> but then you look at an outsourcer and yeah. I see people who I've worked with, I've seen at seminars and I've seen their stories and it's such a sobering thing to make me think and it, it's a proud thing that I think okay well I walked in at My Deposits 2007 and now I'm a you know I'm a director at Omnes and I'm like wow and the people that I used to work with they say you know what Jerry you know you've been such a good, good help to me you're such a um inspiration and I say well that's because the people around me have inspired me so from Eddie Hooker at My Deposits uh Chris Souser at um, um you know you've got um Dexter McGuire when I was at Conduit um, and you know my, my current boss now, Luke Twelve. You know I'm I'm sitting at, sitting at senior my senior leadership team. You know I'm sitting on on a board with the, with doctors. So ironically, in the pandemic now, it's so interesting hearing their insight into healthcare and how we can make things better. And and that's for me. I think the reason why I'm seen as being a good role model and mentor and inspiration is because the people above me have done that for me. And you know you know. Even the pandemic, you know, I was speaking uh, to my old boss uh, Jim Farnsworth, and you know, I was asking him how are you dealing with the pandemic because obviously we had to mobilise for um, home working for secondary care because we have a contact centre in um, in um, London Bridge, and we were mobilising for that. And I was looking at how we can do it more effectively and efficiently. And what I love is that you know Jim is in such a senior senior role. Um, and also my other um, a friend Peter Ryan, how quickly are they are to say give me half an hour, an hour of their time because you know these are individuals that are very very busy. But I think that's one of the things which is so great about outsourcing is that people are so willing and happy to yes. help. They're so receptive to change, and that's a big thing because outsourcing now. That's when I was listening to um, is it is it Bino at uh, yes. yeah yeah the massive changes that you know Venture have had in End, It's it's crazy and and. And he probably very, he should be very proud of one of the first outsourced to mobilize for full remote working. You know, it's things like this that you know, outsourcing is at the forefront when it comes to technology, forefront when it comes to, technolo- um, to um, customer service. And I think what we've been able to prove now, especially also with the COVID-19 contact tracing, because, you know, I think, I think well, the, the main headline figure from the government was 25,000 yes. agents remote yes. working. And initially I was like, yeah, whatever. My, my friends are team leaders and um, contact center agents in those contracts um, for Circo and for Sightel, mm. et cetera, and Interact. And it's seeing how quickly we were able to mobilize, how, how we are able to effectively coach and support staff remotely. And the big challenge now will be, you know, the new normal is potentially home working. Mm. The new no- normal is potentially smaller contact centers, hybrid models it's ultimately delivering the best service, regardless of whether you're sitting next to an individual, because we're having an effective conversation now, but we're in different parts of the country, Yeah, you know, and it's about making sure that you have the right tools, making sure that you've got the right support structures in place so that you deliver effectively, because ultimately the best talent may not be in central London, the best talent may be in my hometown of Birmingham or where I live in Hertfordshire. Mm. And if you restrict yourself in that people, are not as happy to travel because the cost of travel from Hertfordshire into central London for me, it's almost 30 pounds a day. And all of a sudden for the salary that you may be offering staff, then you may not be as an attractive proposition. But the great thing now with remote working is that you open up yeah. such a massive talent pool, but also people that have kids, you know, flexible working, you know, split shifts, there's so much things now that we're able to do to offer a better service, and that's one of the things that we're looking to do with Omnes and the Omnes Way. And I'll be, you'll be seeing a lot of that over my LinkedIn over the next year or so. But one of the things that I want to make sure is that we make the right decision, but it centres around what the patient needs. What is the best, uh, the best way to deliver this service for the patient? Because there's things that you can do to deliver effectively and reduce your bottom line. There's things that you can do to increase revenue, but does it deliver the most effective patient service? And does it ensure that the patient journey is kept as as effective as possible and that's one of the things that we're looking to do at omnes and i think all organisations, whether it's a ventrica or a sitel whether it's um, even my previous role working over at computer center in tesco there's so many things that the covid pandemic has proven that we all need to think differently and when it's when the pandemic is over we shouldn't revert to type you know we shouldn't go back to how we were just because we're used to having a big contact center It's fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's days where I'm sitting there in my uh, my breakfast bar thinking, oh, I miss the buzz of the contact center. Um, But there's different ways that you can have it. There's so many things that I've seen on LinkedIn where people are having themed Zoom calls. And and these are one of the things that I did, because we we were mobilizing a new team. And one of the things that I did, I said, we have to have a um, superhero theme. So I, um, I jumped onto the call wearing a yellow Power Ranger mask and they were shocked <laughs> because they didn't think I was going to participate. And then another caller joined as a Black Panther. And I, I'm, I'm very much someone that likes to be engaged with staff because I think, you know, you can sit up there in your ivory tower, but it's boring up there. Sometimes mm. you need to get down. Uh, you need to be on the, the you know, be on the cold face. You need to re- You need to let staff know that you can do what they do Uh, but also because you know what they do, the decisions you make are not going to basically be detrimental to their performance or their day-to-day way of life or doing things. And, you know, for everything that I do in outsourcing, you know, I always go back to, you know, thinking about my first day walking into my deposits or the challenges working for the NHS with um, Conduit dealing with the telephone appointments line is that if, if you put your staff first, you will progress. If you're solely focused on your own targets and goals, then it will come um, crumbling down like a like a deck of cards so for me you know coaching and anything that you do in life you know just just focus on the individual focus on the person focus on the people and the people will get you to where you need to go i mean one of the things that my mom said to me and i always say you should be looking for a promotion not a pay rise because if you're always after a pay rise there's going to be a, a band that you're going to hit a ceiling if you're focused on a the promotion, then you're looking to be the best core handler. You're looking to be the best team leader. You're looking to be a role model amongst your peer groups and then become an operations manager or moving on to being a client service manager or a director or a um, chief executive officer. And that's one of the things that I do myself. But I promote and push it with all of the staff that I work with. And, and yes, obviously pay rises are good. And if my boss is listening, <laughs> I'll be looking to speak to him in a year or time. But I need to be making sure that I'm effectively doing my job. And me doing that is by promoting uh, development within. You know, I always say in any organisation, if you have to recruit from outside, you've got to question your, how you promote and how you support and mentor staff internally. And whenever, and obviously, ironically, yes, I've moved um, as an external candidate into companies. But the proudest thing is when I've left is you know, at Conduit. Uh, Sarah took over the role as the operations lead. And these are things that I look back and I talk about in my interviews. I mean, interviews—you're talking about your competencies, your success stories—and my success stories are one, the performance of the team, but also the progression within the team. People mm. moving from the floor to the boardroom. These are things which I think are fantastic and only outsourcing can provide.
0: I think your your ethos on leadership and your passion for people and coaching is is great to hear. You know that kind of the the fact you can name loads of people that have kind of you've helped and have helped you, yeah. I think is a great um, message for people to to be able to hear you talk so passionately and eloquently about it is um, has been great. Where to summarize, really, the kind of the links between the, your background in coaching and the accreditation and qualifications you have in football coaching Mm -hmm. and how you talked you talked previously around you know different skill sets within a team and having to take a baby a more individual look at people's challenges taking on feedback and amending your style as a result of that Mm -hmm. Um, what are the other kind of key transferable lessons that you apply in both of your separate worlds—the football coaching and then the, you know, the,
1: the business world. Um, I think I probably take this more from my current coaching at Stockfold because coaching young men, which is what they are, uh, versus coaching kids, there's there's different ways that you can approach underperformance. And I think one of the things which i was often accused of in my younger years is always wanting to be the nice guy always wanting to be a friendly with people nice. i think sometimes the best way to show someone you love them is to be firm with them it's to set them hard targets uh, and obviously realistic targets you don't want to set anyone nice. something unrealistic but being at Stockfold, and as we try to transition players from the under 18s into the first team uh, it's about setting hard targets and interestingly i had a um, a zoom call with the development team uh, coaching staff so I suggested a, um, a zoom call to uh, my boss Darren and we sat down and we just we spoke about the previous season and what went well and what didn't went well and we just had a we were very honest and we were very firm with one another about well this is where we failed and I think this is what I could have done better and this is what you could have done better and for me one of the most fantastic um, conversations to have because When you are a volunteer, which is what I am with a football club, you know, you don't necessarily have the time to invest in having these deep dive conversations. But for me, the most transferable thing I've learned is sometimes you just have to sometimes be the bad guy. (laughs) But you've got to recognise how you deliver that bad news. Mm -hmm. I always say, you know, you're more than likely to accept bad news from a friend than from an enemy.
0: Yeah.
1: So if you understand people or you understand how to approach people, then they will often take bad news in a better way you know if someone's underperforming and you know you're always belittling them and then you're having that same conversation where you're trying to undermine them in front in front of their peer group etc they're just not going to listen whereas if you take them to one side and you remind them of when they've done well and how they achieved it and what they can do to be better but how you're going to be there to support them then they'll often be a lot more receptive to change and improvement but on the bottom line you need to remind them though, that you're there to do a job um, and you know you're there to support them but you need to set them realistic targets and goals and for me as an individual stepping into my new role at Omnes you know one of the things which you know working you know with my new peer group learning about primary and secondary care in the NHS and the challenges which the pandemic has caused is that there's going to have to be a lot more firmer conversations that I'm having because you know you know I've always said I've always thought that I'm, a, I'm an easy person to manage but I know that I can be challenging, you know, how would I manage someone like myself? You know, yeah. how would I manage someone, how would I manage operations managers? Because, you know, I, I remember uh, when I moved over to Siteel, uh, Claire who was my boss, but she, I took over her contract. So there was a lot of pressure, you know, because she was a high performing manager and, you know, a lot of conversations that she had with me, you know, they were very sobering because again, I moved from an organization that I thought I was the best circle. i I've taken them to a certain level. I was like, yes. And, you know, one of the big things with me is I've got no problem being told off. You know, know, whether it's my current bosses or whether it's actually people in my team. I always say to people when I'm doing agent forums, if I'm not doing or I'm not delivering what I said I was going to deliver, tell me. Because a manager's job, we get paid to be interrupted. Mm. You know, a manager's job should never be nine to five. I'll be doing A, B and C. If we're not doing something right, tell us, you know, now things like having a you said we did, there are all these things that you can do to recognize when you're not doing well, but you can show yourself how you're going to turn it around. So not doing this, okay, well, what do you think we should do? But also being transparent and communicating to them that there's a reason why we can't do this. If our performance increased, then obviously then that may give us an opportunity to have more efficiencies to then mean that we could potentially deliver more effectively for our clients, hit our targets, invest more money, uh, get more contracts which will mean that we can potentially have more opportunities for you to move into management. It's about making them understand that they can be a part of the success, but often you need to have a firm conversation and they're not nice, but it's just how you deliver those conversations and I, I always re- <laughs> I always remember it's not it's not necessarily a funny thing but I remember um, there's a child, this kid called Jamie. is a school that I was coaching at in Woodford. It was years and years and years ago. And he, he kicked another child. And it, it wasn't a nice thing to see. It was a very much an outburst. He was very, he was like this. He, if you were looking to um, cast for the Melky Bar Kid, mm. it, he, was a, he, he was a Milky <laughs> Bar Kid. He looked like butter wouldn't melt. But he was, you know, ironically, his name was Jamie Goody. And he wasn't often good. So, hopefully, he sees this <laughs> now because he's probably, he's probably uh, working now in, in, in a job where he probably laugh at what I'm going to say. But he lashed out another kid, and I remember having the sternest conversation with him. And him, we got on so well, mm. uh, myself and Jamie, but I had the sternest conversation with him, and he was teary eyed. And after the conversation, I was a little bit hesitant, I was thinking, Oh, have, was I a little bit too yeah. firm with this child? Because again, I haven't got a teaching qualification, I come from a coaching mm. background. But I said to myself, morally, what he did was wrong. How would I speak to my younger cousin or my nephew if he behaved in that way? And I approached it in that way. I was respectful, but I let him know that his behavior wasn't right and what I expected of him and what I expect of myself if someone doesn't behave. And, you know, went away teary-eyed. He came back the following week. He apologized and he was good as gold. But then it's, It's opportunities, and it's how you tackle these opportunities. Because the easy way out is just sit down over there, and you're not playing football. Mm -hmm. But the the harder conversation had to be had, and it's things like that that you move into work when staff are underperforming, and you know you you need to have a firm conversation. You need to make it about the business. The business needs better. I expect better from you. The staff expect better from you, and if they turn it around and say, "Well, it's because you haven't done this," I say, "Okay, well, I'll take that on board. I'm here to support you." But this is what I need you to do to address this situation and problem. And then we will come out on the other side with success. And don't get me wrong, it isn't always possible because you get people that fall by the wayside, people leave. But often, you'll often get people succeeding. But you've got to recognize that people won't always do it in a timescale that you expect them to. Yeah. You need to be patient. You know? And that's one of the things which I'm very proud about outsourcing is that we're probably one of the most patient businesses that you can think you know, we set high standards, but we, we have fantastic, fantastic opportunities. You can look on Glassdoor for any organization and you'll see negative reviews. Um, you'll see people saying they don't do this, they don't do that. But often people don't talk about the positives about companies. And that's one of the things that I am as an individual. And that's why I talk so passionately about my deposits in Circo and Sidesell and Conduit. And hopefully in years in years times, I'll be talking positively about Omnes is that because the company's invested in me, I'll invest in the company. And as an individual, whether you walk in the door as a RMC administrator or as a uh, sonographer or as a GP, I will be there to support you because we as a team need to deliver the most effective service for patients. Because, you know, and in the interviews I had recently, um, I was saying to staff, I've worked with the most important asset, and that's children. And then I turned on its head and I said, actually, it kind of isn't, it's, Healthcare because there is nothing more important than people's health whether that's a child's health It could be your nan's health. It could be your own personal health because without health We cannot go to work. We can't enjoy Mm -hmm. life And I think that's why I'm so happy to be back in healthcare and also being a part of the NHS Because seeing how we mobilise for Covid seeing how us, you know, mobilising mobile porticabbing so that we can deliver secondary care for people in the community it it, it makes me proud to be a part of the business and for anyone that works in any company as long as you're proud of what you do and as long as you're delivering service for your customer or for me it's patience you'll you'll wake up proud and you'll go to sleep even prouder and that's one of the things I've I've only been there I think six months at the end of the end of this month but already I'm proud to be working where I'm working and already I see how passionately people are in healthcare. You know and that's one of the things you know i i had working at site with um, johnson johnson's and the diabetes uh, life scan and you see it's a different type of person different type of uh, agent profile mm. and that's you know you know what i want to hopefully reflect as a manager because there's no point wanting to have that as an agent profile but then you don't reflect that in your management style and approach because you can be firm but sometimes you need to always make sure that you're not too firm because obviously you can, you can make people underperform purely by your own actions. And you need to make sure that you're always there to support them and from a coaching perspective. And I can't wait to get back to coaching the boys. I mean, to be fair, in the WhatsApp group for the football group, the, the boys have been very quiet. But I think it's because they've, got, they've probably been bored sick of us as, ma- as a management <laughs> yeah. team. But as a management team across the first team, I mean, again, I can use um, Grego, Luke Gregson, who's the first team manager one of the greatest traits that he has is that, and I was talking to Darren about it, is that he makes everyone feel welcomed and a part of the greater the greater goal. Because when we walked in as a development team, you know, you often can be overlooked as a reserve side. But one of the things that he's done with Darren and myself uh, in the development side, he's made us feel a part of the first team. He's made us yes. feel a part of the club. And because ultimately, the better players we provide to Stockfold yes. will help him in this first team. So. The easiest thing to say is, oh, yeah, but it's self- he's looking at it from a selfish He's doing it for himself. No, because ultimately, Stockfold, as a club, we've moved into a brand new stadium. It's an opportunity for us to be a community club. And it's an opportunity for us to have a pathway for someone who's in the youth team all the mm. way through to the first team. And it's things like this that I try to bring from my working practices into Stockfold. There's elements from the coaching that I bring from football into to where I work. And, yeah, I mean, you know... I, everyone says it to me I'm very very passionate and I think it's it's just literally because I'm in an industry which I love working in you know it, it's very easy to be passionate about something that you love.
0: Jerry that's a great place to end because it's been an absolute privilege to listen to you talk as you know and share your insight and and wisdom um, definitely definitely have to do it again because I don't think uh, an hour is is long enough um, so I'd love to have you back on um, and talk some more? But Jerry, thank you very much for coming on. Oh,
1: thank you, and best of luck for this evening. Hopefully, Pogba scores or Rashford. I think Rashford <laughs> destined to score with all of the great work that he's doing for. Um, yeah, the I would. Team, I would. So yeah. I would have, have him
0: score in a three-one win to Tottenham. <laughs> Jerry, thanks same, a thank lot. Thank you for having me on. No worries.
1: And, uh, you know, I think it's fantastic the work that you've been doing, especially. Um, promoting getting people back into work because I was unemployed for a certain period of time and for me it's fantastic I mean the little things that you do I mean little things from, just from the little things that you've been doing I mean I, I I've spoken to a few people that have been unemployed and just having a little conversation or a little message send them on LinkedIn just to see how they are anything that you can do to support you know just see and that's just come elements from what you've been doing because you don't have to do what you're doing and I think you do, you're doing fantastic work And hopefully it doesn't go unnoticed. And I think you should be proud of what you're doing. And also, our industry needs a podcast, and your podcast is actually very good. (laughs) And I've still got my 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 button that you sent me, and all those. Oh great! Well,
0: you'll you'll be getting getting a coffee mug now as well. So
1: (laughs) the good thing is, in my current job, it's actually made me more uh, more of a liking to coffee. My old job, never liked coffee, but now there's a lot more late nights and early mornings. So coffee, thank you for that. So
0: no, Jerry, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure,
1: my friend. Um, you too. Thank you, and have a great day. And come on, United. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to get in touch with Jerry, please do so. Equally, if you'd like to get in touch with me to talk about the podcast, happy to do as well. If you haven't already, please do subscribe. And finally, like Jerry mentioned at the end, if you can support any of the job seekers by looking at their profiles, connecting with them, sharing relevant opportunities. I post every week on LinkedIn, a list of people looking for work in my network and your support would be invaluable. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. See you soon.
1: Yay!